Good morning. I want to ask you to turn to Psalm 73, please. Uh, and as you do, I just want to thank you again for having me here with you uh, and your uh, incredible church family. It's an honor to be able to stand uh, before you today with the opportunity to herald the Word of God. Uh, and, uh, and I am blessed. I want to thank uh, the elders for asking me to be here. And I also want to extend uh, a welcome uh, from the Elders of Grace, which is where uh, I am a pastor on staff. Uh, we spent a little bit of time praying for you this morning. Uh, we know that as a church, uh, you're like every other church, and you have things that you are up against and experiencing uh, unique trials, uh, unique uh, ways that the Lord uh, needs to and is ministering his gospel. And so we're praying that he would be very gracious with you. And, and also, I just want to take a, the briefest of moments to, to commend the pastoral prayer we just heard. My fear is, is that we would gather together as the people of God. And for one reason or another, we're tired. Um, we have sort of a vision of what we think church ought to be. And, and so the different components of it, we, we check out. And uh, I've been worshiping with you two times now, and both times uh, a beautiful, thoughtful, uh, intentionally well-crafted pastoral prayer has been prayed. And I just want to urge you, do not check out during that time. This is a, an opportunity for you to actively be shepherded by your elders, the people uh, who are responsible and will give account for how they have shepherded your souls. And the things that we just heard prayed to the Lord on your behalf are beautiful, and they ought to shape us and form us. And so as your shepherds seek to shepherd you, I want to urge you to lean into that. Uh, God is pleased when you do so, and if you do, then I think you are setting yourself up well to have your heart formed such that you would become more and more uh, or that you'd be more and more equipped to worship the Lord. And, um, and so, uh, thank you for that beautiful pastoral prayer. Again, Psalm 73, if you would turn there. Um, so I'm uh, celebrating nine years of marriage in just a couple of days. And given that I uh, am thinking about my anniversary a lot right now and uh, causing me to think back on my wedding day, um, it reminds me of also my honeymoon. Uh, so my wife and I uh, had the great fortune of being able to go to Maui, Hawaii uh, on our honeymoon. And it was so great. Um, if you ever get the chance to go to Maui, I would encourage you to take it. It is a worthwhile place to go. Uh, lots of beauty, lots to do. Um, the only thing is, is if you go to Maui, chances are pretty quickly you will realize it is an expensive place. Um, and they know that they've got a good thing going on. And they know that there are people like me uh, who are getting married and then uh, being whisked away to uh, Maui where, where we want to do our best to make good impressions on our new spouses. And so they end up charging a lot for everything. Um, so I got to Maui uh, with my wife and realized we can basically not afford anything here. Um, and they have so much to do. They have 
parasailing, scuba diving, snorkeling, luau's, and the list just goes on and on. So many things that you want to do. You look at the list and you think this is good stuff. And so, for as a young as a young married couple, I look at that list and I see the price tags and I and I gulp. But what I found out was is you could go and you can do uh, the, these um, timeshare tours. And if you sign up to do a timeshare tour, then these companies will give you 75, 80% off of the different excursions you can do in Maui. So it's a pretty good deal. You spend two hours roaming around a resort somewhere and say, I'll consider buying a timeshare, and then you get to go snorkeling for really cheap. It's great. Um, and so anyway, I figured out how to do this, and I was going to ensure that my wife, that we had a good time on our honeymoon in Maui. Uh, we, we met with this guy, and he walked us through what we would be doing, how we'd spend the two hours for this timeshare tour. Uh, and then at the very end, he said, okay, here's some paperwork. I need you to sign this. And I said, well, what am I signing? And he said, oh, well, you are signing uh, – that you are uh, interested in this timeshare, and uh, as a qualifier, you make such amount of money a year. Uh, You make this salary minimum per year. And I looked at that, and I said, "Ah, I I actually don't make that much money per year. And it wasn't much. It was was a few thousand dollars, I think about three or four thousand dollars less than what the cutoff was to be able to take advantage of this great deal. And the guy said, oh, well, thank you for your honesty. It really doesn't matter. Um, It's just something that they put on there. In fact, the couple that was before you, they didn't make that much money either, but they still signed it. It allows us to do what we're supposed to do to move this whole process forward. You'll still get the deal. And he said, so don't worry, just go ahead and sign it. And he, he kind of handed me the pen. And I sat there and I thought, and I went, well, I really want this. I really want to be able to take my wife to a luau and to be able to go on a snorkeling trip or a, a parasailing trip, all this stuff that would be available to me if I would just sign my name on this paper and say that I make X amount of money. But at the same time, I knew that that, that wouldn't be true, that I'd be signing my name to a piece of paper and effectively I would be lying. And so... Um, not to hold myself up as some paragon of virtue as if I am always this way, but I chose not to sign that piece of paper. And I chose to thus not have as enjoyable of a honeymoon as we possibly could have. And it was really hard. Um, I, I will confess to you that that was not the natural instinct of my heart, the natural inclination of my heart. Instead, I had to wrestle and I had to uh, go to the Word and to consider the, the stakes of me signing this piece of paper and effectively lying. And, and I was really, really discouraged about it afterwards. Um, it, it just felt unfair that I wasn't going to be able to get this blessing and be able to give my wife the honeymoon that I desired for. But at the same time, uh, by doing so, I didn't lie. And I think the Lord was honored in that. Here's the reason I share this story. More and more, um, as I have the opportunity to sit with others and talk about the gospel and seek to minister the word of God, the more I am becoming convinced that the biggest question that we are facing, at least in our world, is not, is there a God? 
is God real? I think more and more uh, people in our world, in our society, in our culture, we accept the reality of a God. More and more, the question that is being asked by non-believers and believers alike is, is God worth following? Is God worth following? I really think that's the question that we are wrestling with today and our world is wrestling with today. Is Christianity worth it? Is Jesus worth it? There are plenty of people out there who believe in some sort of God. Some sort of God. That may be an actual God that they claim to worship, or it may be some sort of idol that they have bowed down at the feet of. But they have no problem with worship. The question is, is what they are worshiping better, or is Jesus better? Is it worth it to follow Jesus, or is it worth it to follow after this other God, or these other gods? That, I think, is the big societal question that we are wrestling with and that we need to deal with as a church. Well, today I am here to declare to you, to tell you that Jesus is better. Jesus and his ways are better. Not only is Jesus better, but following him submitting to his ways, loving him, living a life that lifts him up, it exalts his name, is the absolute best way that we can steward our lives. Regardless if it costs us uh, a not as good honeymoon as we could possibly have, to follow after Jesus is the best way that we can steward and live our lives. Jesus and his ways are better. And so this morning, uh, we're going to, open our Bibles and turn to Psalm 73. And we're going to see a psalm where the psalmist, he understands these, these things that I think are so natural to us to wonder, is there really a better way? Is this life of pursuing God and seeking to know him and enjoy him, is it worth it? And, and having those concerns, understanding that posture, I think we can go to Psalm 73 and therefore be instructed. And so we're going to see three things as we consider this Psalm. One, the way of the wicked, the way of the world, the way of the flesh, it's enticing. It is enticing. It is tempting. There's something attractive about it. Two, though, the way of the world, the way of the wicked, the way of the flesh, is folly. Nevertheless, as enticing as it may be, it is folly. And finally, there is true and everlasting contentment. And it's true and everlasting contentment in Christ. In Christ. And so, that's where we're going to be this morning. If you would join me in praying. Father, I praise you for the opportunity to gather together with this church, this outpost of heaven this local congregation who is seeking to make much of Jesus. And Lord, as we seek to do that by going to you in your word, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and that your spirit would be actively applying this word to our hearts. And so we submit this time to you as an act of worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 73. Again, 
the first thing we want to see as we go and begin to actually read is that the way of the wicked is enticing. The way of the wicked is enticing. So I'm going to read a little chunk beginning in verse 1. If you would follow along with me. Truly God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. All right, these verses, um, they're hard verses. They begin with beautiful theology. Beautiful theology, right from the very beginning. Verse 1 says that truly God is good and His goodness extends to His people, to Israel. And and in this psalm, it it immediately dives into this, this positive affirmation of God's character and His nature. And this should lead to worship and to praise and to trust. But instead... The psalmist here confesses that this right theology, this right thinking, hadn't actually led for, to him living or thinking rightly. In other words, what we, what we see here is, is that this right theology did not get into his heart to affect his living. Why? Verse 3 says that the psalmist was envious. Envious of the wicked, envious of the people who have no wants. He was envious of those who were wealthy, who were prosperous, who had the things that they wanted. So keep going in this psalm. We see that the psalmist is recognizing that the wicked seem to have pretty great lives. He looks around. He sees his neighbors. He sees those people who are in power. He sees those people who are driven by the passions of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh, the ways of the world. And they're doing just fine. And not just fine, they're doing well. Verse 4 says that they have no pangs until death. And their bodies are fat and sleek. Now maybe that doesn't seem like they're doing well to you. But in this day and age, that meant that they have an abundance of food, that they are doing just fine, and they're not having to worry where their next meal is going to come from. 
No, they, they have an abundance of stuff. Verse 5 says, says the wicked, they don't have the same sort of trouble as others. These two verses are essentially putting forward this truth about the wicked. They have seemingly carefree lives, not worrying about the normal sort of things that the rest of us have to worry about, that the godly are up against. And as the passage continues, we see that the wicked, their carefree, their seemingly carefree lives lead them into more and more sin. The sin begets sin. And it leads them ultimately to set themselves up against God, to stand in opposition against God. So the wicked then spurred on by the seeming prosperity of their wickedness and increase, they increasingly function less and less like God intended them to function. Verse 12 summarizes this ultimately. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. These people who don't care about God, who don't care about his ways, who don't seek to follow after him or embrace his character, live virtuous, upstanding lives in the name of the Lord, they're at ease, increasing in riches. Now, this is discouraging for those who are seeking God. This is discouraging for the people of God. The lives of the godly, the Christians, that that we know in our world, us, Christians are to live lives that are ultimately not aimed at self. No, Christians are to live self-sacrificial lives where they put God and His glory first, where they put the needs of others first. And this is a, a type of life that comes with significant heartache. The psalmist is recognizing that the people of God will experience this sort of heartache. The psalmist says that he has strived to live a pure life. He's labored to keep God's commandments. He has strived to to live a pure life even. Uh, And and to, to be for God and not against God. To be on his side and not stand in opposition to him. And yet... At the very same time, despite his effort to live an upright life, he sees how difficult his life is. He sees that his life does not look like the wicked person's life. He's not fat and sleek. Uh, He's not carefree. He's not increasing in riches. His life is full of burden. That leads to these two incredibly sad verses, verse 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Psalmist looks out and he sees others and the way that they're living and the carefree, easy nature of their life. And he looks at his own life and he sees the trouble and he says, all in vain. Vanity. My pursuit of the Lord has been vanity. Um, obviously, what, one of the things that's been dominating the news cycle this past week has been uh, the story of the war in Afghanistan, the, the United States pulling back, and the Taliban um, very quickly, forcefully uh, overrunning uh, the rest of this country. And... 
It's been hard to watch, as I'm sure many of you have been keeping up with the news. There are so many images, so many videos, so many stories that are coming out that are just difficult. I don't know of a good way to express what we are seeing come across our news feeds, but it is a, it is a, a trying time for the country of Afghanistan. Um, I've been troubled as well uh, as I have began to, to hear a little bit more from the people that I know who, for one reason or another, have some sort of personal stake or interest in Afghanistan, uh, whether that be believers who have labored or who have invested in Afghanistan or those who I know who maybe have served in the military or in some sort of formal capacity towards Afghanistan or in Afghanistan. One of the things I keep seeing uh, popping up on my social media feeds over this past week is this feeling of loss and this feeling of, uh, of what in the world did we do for all of these years in Afghanistan? Was it worth it? I have friends who, who spent significant amount of time away from their families to go and serve in Afghanistan. In the military, I have friends who have lost loved ones in Afghanistan while fighting in, in our military. And, and these families and these people, they're, they're beginning to, to ask these questions. Was, was our effort, was our labor, was our sacrifice, was it worth it? Or was it vanity? They watched the Taliban ride into town kind of... Uh, with a, a different kind of aghast horror than others, and even myself, was their labor in vain? Was their effort in vain? That's a, that's a difficult question, a hard question to wrestle with. Well, as Christians, in a similar way, when we see the easygoing nature of the world around us, of the, of the worldly people, the, the people who are led by their flesh, those who live wicked lives, we can look at their lives and we can look at ours and see that they're not all that easy and that they are troubled. And, and we can have that sense of hopelessness as well and say, is this all vanity? Why have I pursued the Lord? It, it causes us to ask questions that, that are hard and it causes us to feel that gut sort of response that, that doesn't feel right. It makes me feel like the first time that I had to do taxes uh, when I was a full-time employed pastor. Um, I, uh, I went and met with my tax person and this tax person said, uh, if you'd like, you can check this box that says that you do not need to pay social security because you... Uh, you think that there is a uh, religious, uh, biblical reason why you shouldn't have to pay Social Security. He said, just so you know, I don't think that you should be able to do that, but it's there if you would like to check that box. And I said, uh, as tempting as that is, I don't think I'm going to check that box uh, to save that extra money. And boom, got hit with a massive tax bill. And I thought, man, if only I was willing to check that little box, I could have saved a ton of money. It's the same feeling that I've fought against when I've considered um, hanging in there with a difficult member of my family. For over 10 years, I've had a member of my family who was just hard to deal with. 
and convinced, uh, convinced by my time in the Word and my, my time uh, seeking the Lord's face in prayer that I need to hang in there with this relationship and forgive and entreat and seek to extend love and in particular the love of Christ, I, I've had to endure a lot of heartache. I've had to endure uh, barbs and unkind, even cruel words. Um, having to have lots of opportunity to forgive, and yet I've hung in there, and I've hung in there, and now over a decade later, I have nothing to show for it. And meanwhile, there are others within my family, outside of my family, who've washed their hands of this relationship a decade ago, and it's no skin off of their back. They seem to be enjoying their life, and meanwhile, I continually go back to this relationship and suffer as a result of it with nothing to show. As you consider your life, no doubt there will be ways that you recognize that you have suffered or that you have gone without uh, or that you have sacrificed all for the sake of the name of Jesus. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe it's your reputation. You've poured yourself out because that's what Christians do. We give. We self-sacrifice in the footsteps of our Savior. And what this psalm does is it recognizes that natural human emotion to look around at others and their prosperity and say, is this all worth it? The lives of the wicked are enticing. They live seemingly carefree lives without the angst and the difficulty that comes along with pursuing the Lord. They get what they want. So that's it, right? If that's the case, then why don't we just drop this charade and go and pursue the world? Why don't we live for the flesh? We should abandon Christ and we should pursue the way of the world if that's the end of the story, right? Well, not so fast. Point two. The way of the wicked the way of the world, the way of the flesh, as enticing as it may be, is folly. Folly. I'm going to read again, verse, starting with verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. I love how verses 16 and 17 show us that the psalmist didn't know how to understand what he was seeing. That, that sounds like me. I get that. The fact that the wicked, wicked often prospered and the righteous suffered and struggled, it baffled him. Once again, I think we can relate to this. This is a psalm that's so easy to relate to. We have eyes, and so we look around and we notice that the wicked prosper. And so how do we understand this? What did the psalmist do in light of this question? Why do the wicked prosper? What did the psalmist do? He went into the temple. 
He went into the sanctuary. In other words, he went where the presence of God abided and where the people of God gathered. And there he got his answers. As a side point, I think this is one of those verses where we can see how essential it is for the people of God to prioritize gathering together and not forsaking church. Psalm 73 is not talking about what we are doing right here. It's not talking about church in the New Testament context. Nevertheless, it shows us how significant it is for us to seek the presence of God and seek to be amongst the people of God. The psalmist was confused. The psalmist didn't know what to do. But when he gathered together in this very special locale, that is where the Lord met him. We, in the 21st century, we can so easily discount buildings and places. And we can say things like the church is a people, not a building. And as true as that is, it's important for us to remember that the church is a people who gather together, who assemble. And, and, and when we assemble, God is amongst us. God, God dwells within us. And special things happen when we do exactly what we're doing this morning. And so this is one of those passages, one of those many passages in Scripture that I think should encourage us to be people who are, are glad and, and anxious to gather because we know that we will meet with God and He will order and guide our lives as a result. And so the psalmist does this. He goes to the temple, he goes into the sanctuary, and there he gets spiritual guidance. There he is encouraged and, and ultimately is able to discern what is actually going on. And so what did the psalmist discern? He discerned the end of the wicked. Verses 18 through 22 tell us plainly and clearly that while the wicked might seem great, seem to have great and carefree lives, it's actually, the way of the wicked is actually a way that leads to nothing. Leads to nothing. The wicked set themselves up against God. They stand in opposition against Almighty God. They are idolaters who see themselves as their own gods. And this psalm teaches us that while they set their face against God, God will have the final say. They have not truly supplanted God. God will rise up. And he will have the final word. And so they will be swept away. They will be made to fall to ruin. They will be destroyed in a moment. And they will be swept away by terrors. Notice the language of this psalm. The psalms use poetic language. And they often paint these vivid, expressive pictures to help us to feel the point that is being made. And in verse 20, in this verse, the wicked are described as those who are like a dream when one is awake. Ever had a really vivid dream? One of those dreams that just, it kind of pierces your, your, your heart and your imagination. You wake up and it's all you can think about. And yet, what happens with dreams? They sort of go away. Can't tell you how many times I've had some, some really weighty dream, some piercing dream, and I wake up and I think about it for 15 minutes, and then I go and I try to describe it to my wife, but as I try to do so, it's like the details sort of go between my hands, and they just sort of disappear. That's what happens with dreams. I was trying to think of a particular dream I could share with you to, to illustrate this point, and then all of a sudden I couldn't remember any dreams that I had dreamed recently, and I thought, well, that's exactly the point, right? 
These dreams, they're hard to hold on to. They're there for a moment, but then they're gone completely, utterly. They disappear. And that is what this psalm is saying about the wicked. The wicked are those who are here now and they seem to be doing just fine. They seem to be prospering. Life seems to be good, but tomorrow they will be no more. That money won't last. That reputation won't last. That influence won't last. That carefree way of living won't last. It will disappear like a vapor and that memory will ultimately fade. This morning I keep saying that the wicked live seemingly carefree lives. In reality, the wicked are those who are unfulfilled and unsatisfied. They might get the smallest amount of satisfaction for a moment, but they're always clamoring for more. They're always feasting on a type of food, a type of bread that does not fill them up. They're always drinking a type of drink that cannot quench their thirst. They, the, their ways, the ways of the world, the ways of the flesh, the way of the wicked, it may promise satisfaction, but it can't make good on those promises. Not only that, but the wicked are those who will be gone tomorrow. They will be gone for eternity, away from the presence of God, away from true and everlasting joy himself. And so pay attention. The psalmist is opening our eyes to the reality of the situation. Yes, the way of the wicked may seem enticing at times. Man, how I desire a carefree life at times. But the psalmist is saying, as enticing as that may be, as enticing as, as, as attractive as that may be, it is ultimately folly. It, it is a, a type of slope that will only lead to destruction. And so it makes no sense, ultimately, to walk according to the ways of the wicked. To, to see their lives and think, yes, I will abandon the ways of the Lord and I will pursue this instead. Part of the message of Psalm 73 it is clear. Do not envy the wicked and their ways. There are real practical reasons why we shouldn't envy the wicked. It's just dumb. It doesn't have a good outcome. Their ways won't satisfy. It will lead to destruction. But the message of Psalm 73 is so much more than that. The message of Psalm 73 is, Do not envy the wicked for... Do not envy the wicked for... There is a much better way. Do not envy the wicked for... There is true and everlasting contentment. And that true and everlasting contentment comes in a person, Jesus. And so that's our final point this morning. There is true and everlasting contentment. And that true and everlasting contentment is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Verses 23 through 26. Follow along with me as I read. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. These four verses are so incredibly beautiful. There's 
absolutely no way I can give them the words that they deserve. These are the sorts of words that are worth memorizing and storing up in our heads and our hearts, and I encourage you to do that. But Psalm 73, it holds up the wicked, and it shines the light of reality on their situation. Then it holds up the righteous, and and in doing this, God says, show you who's truly blessed. Here are the wicked, here are the righteous. Let me show you who's blessed. Let me show you whose ways you ought to uh, you ought to move uh, ought to work towards. The wicked are far from God, and they will be cast away from Him forever. But verse twenty three says that the righteous are presently and will forever presently have and will forever have God's presence. If you are in Christ, God is with you. If you are in Christ, it's as if God holds your hand in the midst of trial. Even today, the wicked are led by their arrogance, their stomachs, the lusts of their eyes and the flesh. But verse 24 tells us that God guides the righteous with his sweet counsel. God leads us by his word, which leads us to Christ, having our eyes opened by the Spirit. The wicked will be utterly destroyed. Here today, gone tomorrow. Like a phantom, but verse 24 tells us that after the righteous die, whether in good or in bad circumstances, they will be received to everlasting glory. Glory. The wicked have themselves and they have their riches. Verse 25 tells us, though, that the righteous have God in heaven and there is nothing, nothing, nothing on earth. Nothing on earth that compares to him, that is more desirable than him, that is sweeter than him, that is better than him. In the verse 26, he tells us that even though our flesh and our heart may fail, even if our heart and our flesh may fail, just like the psalmist's heart and flesh almost failed, God is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. And so just like with the psalmist, God will preserve you and cause you to persevere. These four verses, they tell us why having God alone is enough. Because God is the best portion. The best portion, the best way. He is all in all. He is the great and beautiful inheritance and he is ours in Christ. I recently made pancakes for my sons uh, as they were going back to school. I uh, made pancakes, and the first pancake was one of the worst pancakes that's ever been made. It, it looked terrible. It was, like, unevenly cooked. I was figuring it out. But by the end of it, I was making consistent, excellent pancakes. And the last pancake was, like, the best pancake you've ever seen in your life. And I think we as Christians sometimes... As we look out in the world and we see the ways of the world, we can be tempted to think that the Christian life is like that first pancake. It's terrible. It may be a pancake, but at the end of the day, it's misshapen, it's undercooked, it's not great, whereas the way of the world is like that final pancake, and it's as good as, it, as a pancake could possibly be. It, that, that's where the real good stuff is. And Psalm 73 is coming and saying, no, 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 no. Don't let your experiences, your present experiences, warp the reality of things. 
No, time and time again, the scriptures testify. And experience bears this out. The more we taste and see of the Lord, taste and see of the Lord, the more we will realize that God is the best portion. He is the best pancake. He is the best thing that we could receive. He is not second fiddle. He is not giving us a bad life and one day we'll have a good life. No, in Christ, in the Lord, we have the very best thing that we could ever hope for. The chosen portion. An inheritance that is pleasing. We have everything in the Lord. And please recognize that we have everything in the Lord because of Christ. Because of Jesus. Consider this. Nevertheless, I am with you. You hold my right hand because of Christ who ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent the Spirit Spirit to indwell and guide us. This can be true. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory because of Christ who made a way for me to glory by bearing my sin upon the cross and being crushed under the wrath of God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Because of Christ who revealed the glory of God and who purchased for us an everlasting inheritance and in heaven. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. Because of Christ in whom my sins are completely forgiven and whose gospel breaks the power of sin in my life so that the Spirit may lead me and guide me. This psalm It holds up Christ for us that we may worship him. Because of Christ, we can confidently say that we belong in the camp of the righteous and not of the wicked. And because of Christ, the first part of Psalm 73 will not be eternally true of us. We will not be like phantoms. We will not be the eternal glory robbers. Rather, we will be those who are blessed and received to glory. Jesus... In his ways, they are better. And so I urge you, when you are tempted to despair because you see the wicked prosper, turn to Christ, taste and see Jesus. Remember the eternal favor and inheritance you have in him. May this lead you to worship. Jesus is better. When you are tempted to think that the wicked are living the good life, Recognize the gospel reveals that Christ purchased for us the true good life. And that is here on this earth, and that is forever in eternity. For we have God now and forever. Jesus is better. When you are tempted to think that your life has been lived in vain, that all of the effort, that, that all of the hope, all of the pouring yourself out, that it's vanity because you haven't received those things that others have received. Remember that the gospel definitively declares that every ounce of energy expended, every dollar stewarded, every effort made for Christ is worth it because Jesus is better. It all comes down to this. The way of the wicked is folly, but there is true, true, everlasting contentment in Christ. And so what do we do? We lean into Christ. We lean into his ways. And we grow in the knowledge and understanding of this by continually tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Feasting on the bread of heaven. Drinking from the wellspring of life.
Finally, as we close, I want to read the last two verses of this psalm. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. These two verses, along with the three verses of Psalm 73, they bracket the psalm. They open and they close the psalm in basically the same way. Psalm 73 begins by saying, truly, God is good. But I have a hard time buying into that and believing it and letting it affect my heart. After the psalmist works through all this, Psalm 73 closes by saying, God is good. And it is good for me to be near him. The Lord is my refuge to the praise of his glorious grace. And now that I have discerned these things, I'm going to go and tell everybody about it. And so church, that's what I urge you to do as well. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Believe that Jesus is better. And as you get that into your heart, go and tell everybody about him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a good God. A good God who loves us. And as I tell my sons all the time, a good God who gives us good presence. And that most glorious and blessed present is your son Jesus, in whom we have life and the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray that as we reflect on Jesus today, that we would see that Jesus truly is better than anything that this world has to offer. And anything that this world has to offer is ultimately offering us some cheap, uh, insufficient imitation of what Jesus can offer. And so Lord, would you give us eyes to see, would you give us ears to hear, Would you take this word and put it in our hearts in such a way that we adore Jesus as a result? And so I entrust this congregation to you, praying that you would work powerfully by your spirit in them, causing them to hope and believe and walk according to Jesus' ways. Pray us in Christ's name.